Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 17th, and my guest is Paul Graham, essayist, programmer, and programming language designer. He's the author of, among other books, Hackers and Painters, and a partner in the Y Combinator. Paul, welcome to EconTalk. Oh, thank you. Let's start with the Y Combinator. Tell us what that is. It's a venture capital firm, but what's different about it, and why did you get involved in it? Uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't use the term venture capital firm to describe it, because in the business, venture capital firm means something very specific. It means like you raised a couple hundred million dollars from university endowments or something like that, and then you, know, you have a bunch of like, venture partners who sit on boards and stuff like that. What we do is seed funding, um, okay. and there's not really any name for us yet, because what we do is sort of new. Um, and I'm actually glad. I have, I have encouraged there to be no name for us. Because what that means is whenever, whenever anybody starts some kind of new thing copying us, the only way they can describe it is to mention us. That's true. <laughs> they have to say, why Combinator-like thing, right? Sure. Whereas if there were a general noun for it, they could just say a new blank. That's true. Right? So, so I'm, I'm happy so that there's no name for what we are. So say, tell us what it does. Right. So we at, gotta, at the risk of creating a... Opportunity for somebody to then create a name for it, but yeah. take a chance. Yeah, they've been trying to use the name incubator, but that already meant something else quite yeah. different. Um, okay, what we do is, uh, the big difference between us and a venture capital fund is that a venture capital fund makes a small number of large bets, right? A venture capital fund will invest on the order of one or two million at a time, and they will do maybe two deals per partner per year. We invest $20,000, um, and we might invest in 50 or 60 startups in a year with just four partners, right? So 15 deals per partner. <laughs> Seven times the volume and one hundredth the amount. And uh, what's, what's the likely uh, success rate? You know, we don't know yet. Relative to um, the, I'll tell the you other model. Well, it's not going to be as high. In fact, if our success rate was as high as a good VC funds, that would... That would worry me because it would mean we were being too conservative, right? Mm-hmm. This, 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 there ought to be a lot of failures or we're being too careful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so although I don't know yet what the success rate will be, I would be happy if it were a third, right? Um, which means most of the startups we fund will fail. <laughs> and that's okay. That's standard, yeah. Yeah. And so you're giving a small amount and how do you screen them and, and is there any pattern to what kind of firms there, kind of ideas there? Um, there are patterns, but not, not in ideas. Uh, we screen them, we, we do everything in batch, uh, what, what computer people call batch mode. Um, what we're doing, if you want to understand what we're doing in one sentence, it is we are applying mass production techniques to venture funding, right? Now, we didn't set out to be doing this. We realized about six months in, you know, what we've been doing is we've been applying mass production to venture funding, right? There's this pattern you see over and over again in economic history where there's something that's made one at a time very expensively and unreliably, right? And someone comes along and figures out how to, like, rationalize the process and produce a whole bunch of them all at once 
using standardized procedures and stuff like that, right? Usually by adding a lot of technology to the process or a different yes. kind of technology. Yes, and that is what we do. That is yeah. what we do. Um, we fund a whole bunch of startups at once, and we bring them here to you know Mountain View, um, and they all start at the same time. 30, well, 26 startups all start. Literally? Yes. Like a camp. You sort of say, here's a, or maybe a horse race. Opening day, here's the starting line. How about a graduate program? Okay. Because that's what it's really most like. It's really like some kind of graduate program. If you had to find something else that already existed in the world to stick it to, it's more like that than a boot camp. Maybe more people have been to boot camps than graduate programs, and so they prefer that metaphor, right? Yeah. But it's... It's not like boot camp. We don't make people do push-ups, right? Um, we don't have fearsome drill instructors. Do you teach them stuff? Yes. Oh, yes. So, so um, what's, the, what's the common theme that, uh, or the common materials that's the mass production part? Well, um, you remember you said it always involves introduction of technology, right? Whenever, whenever I can write software for Y Combinator, I'm always happy because that means I can take something that we were doing manually and I can embody it in software and bang, 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 it just happens, right? And so we have a bunch of software internally that we use. One of the things you asked was how we screen people. Um, we get many hundreds of, of applications for every, every batch. We do two batches a year, one starting in June and one in January, right? And every time we get like hundreds and hundreds of applications, we might actually get 1,000 for this next batch because we were getting close to 1,000 last time. Um, and like, if we did this you know, with printed forms or something like that, or if we, had to read, if we had to look at people's PowerPoint decks, we couldn't look at 1,000 PowerPoint decks. We just couldn't do it, right? And well, you so, could, but it would, you'd have to add a lot of people, and then you'd have to monitor the people, make sure they were giving you good advice. Right, right. I mean, just the way the publishing we, I mean, yeah. we, the Y Combinator partners, there's right. only four of us, right? We have to read all these things ourselves. And we have other things to do. You know, sure. like Robert's a professor at MIT. Um, so what we do is we have an application form. We're not going to look at anybody's PowerPoint presentations. We have an application form. Everybody fills out the same questions. And then we have software online that we, we use to blow through these applications and read them quickly and rank them and grade them and look at the top ones. Um, the ones that do best in the application form, we invite to meet us in person. We have interviews in uh, this next batch. The interviews will be the, the weekend of November 20th through 22nd, right? And we will talk to maybe 60 startups in one weekend, 20 a day, right? We talk to them for 10 minutes each, and we decide whether day. to fund them or not yeah. after 10 minutes. Because that's what you have to do. Right. Elevator right. pitch with a long, a tall building. Well, no, actually. We don't like it when people pitch us. Um, we don't have time to be pitched. Right? What we do is we ask them questions. Right. We just ask them questions. They walk in and sit down, and we start asking questions. And we just ask questions for 10 minutes. Do all four of you participate in each interview? Do you yes, yes. They come in, and it's sort of like a court martial. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's four of us yeah. sitting there, and they come in and sit down. Um, and we try and encourage them not to be nervous, actually, but I think the situation inevitably makes them nervous. But, you know. That's like graduate school. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I hate it that it makes people nervous, yeah, actually. Not just because I sympathize with them, but because it makes the interviews so much harder. And like, less fun, by the way. We're, yeah, we're trying to ask these guys questions, and they're, like, stumbling over their words, right? We just want to get the information out of them. If they're nervous, it makes it go worse. Yeah. Um, so we try as much as we can to calm everybody down and be very friendly, but they're you know Television. they're nervous regardless. Um, How long have you been doing it? Uh, four years. We started the summer of two thousand five. So this summer's batch is the ninth batch of startups. And how's the first batch doing? 
The first batch actually did amazingly well. In fact, it probably did anomalously well. We probably just completely lucked out, right? But the first batch included um, Looped. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're probably mostly popular in a different demographic. They're this application that shows you on your cell phone a map showing where all your friends are, uh-huh. right? Like for high school kids, this is the most important thing in the entire world. Where are your friends right now? Physically, right? where they yeah, are. Yeah, like, yeah. Right you can right see like little dots. Yeah. You can see them moving around and stuff. Um, kind of like having an ant colony in your hand, yeah. <laughs> yeah, an ant farm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that is, Looped is very successful. Um, and another startup in the first batch was Reddit. Do you know Reddit, the social news site? Right, that was in the first batch. And in the first batch um, were the founders of Justin.tv. Do you know about Justin.tv? Justin.tv is the leading live streaming video site. Um, It is the number one. There's some astonishing statistic about their traffic, like they get more viewers than Hulu or something like that. I don't know, you can look it up. Um, The Justin.tv guys were doing a different startup that failed. Um, but then, but we liked them, and so we funded them again for their next startup, which turned out to be Justin.tv. And there was a startup in the first batch that was the first one that got bought, actually. It was called Text Pay Me. And no one's heard of it because it got bought so quickly. <laughs> it got bought like almost instantly out of that batch. But I interrupted you before. So you bring these guys in, you interview them, and then... You say yes. Oh, okay, so the so first the then, yeah, Tell me what happens after that. Okay, okay. I'll just blow through it. They all apply online. You get online. 10 minutes or I'm going to cut you off. Yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> so they apply online. We invite 50 or 60 to meet us in person. We talk to them for 10 minutes apiece over one grueling weekend. Okay. Let me tell you. Um, r- that evening, we tell everybody yes or no. At the end of the weekend, the ones we said yes to come back and we'd like explain some basic stuff. And then we tell them, show up here in Mountain View in either January or June, depending on which one it is, right? Um, and thought about doing a TV show, by the way. Uh, you mean like a reality show? Yeah, like American Idols. People would love to watch you grill these guys. They'd learn a lot. Yeah. Kind of cool. Lose a lot of opportunities, maybe. But go ahead. Sorry. So no, no. About- pe- people have, like, from the beginning, people, reality show producers have been asking yeah, us about stuff thing. like this. But it would be one of these things where... Kind of ruins the... Measuring what happened would really affect what yeah, happened. Yeah, no, I would be a right. loser. But anyway, go ahead. So you bring them back. You tell them to come back. And the thing is, I don't even know if Y Combinator is going to work, right? So why don't... I mean, it seems promising so far, but I don't know for sure yeah, yeah. what our returns are going to be like. We're certainly not making lots of money yet, right? Um, and, and if we're just like on the borderline of working or not working, I don't want to mess with something that might kick us over into not working, right? right? Or vice versa, yeah. Keep you from becoming wildly successful. Yeah. So, um, yeah, say invite Okay, back. so we've accepted a new batch of startups, say 25, 30 of them. Um, they all go back home and like... <laughs> you know, pack all our stuff or whatever and come back here. Um, uh, Are most on, of them from here already? No. They come from all over? All over, all over the world. The last winter batch, seven out of 16 startups were from overseas, right? It is so, it is such a huge market. Yeah. The, the, uh, the sort of seed funding market, that's one big thing that people don't understand. They do not understand that the seed funding market isn't regional. You know, they think, I'm going to start the Y Combinator of, you know, St. Louis or something like that. Um, and then they discover 
you're, when they do you're it. You're a competitor. You're, yeah. Well, the, everybody's all competing for the same pool of applicants, right? right? They don't. The people in St. Louis don't not apply to us just because this other thing's in St. Louis. And meanwhile, they get applications from all over the country, not just St. Louis, right? It's all the same people right. because the founders at this stage are completely mobile. They're two guys with laptops who are like used to sleeping on sofas and eating takeout pizza, right? Yep. They could go anywhere um, and do, right? Um, that is actually economically, if you're, if you're interested in the economic aspects of that, that is actually historically quite interesting that these people are so mobile, right? Yeah, it good. means that if a city was like a little bit better than other cities for startups, they would just vacuum all the good people out of the other cities. Yeah, to some extent. Right. Well, it's been happening, but now it's going to happen much more than it did 20 or 30 years ago. Why? Because it's now so much easier to start a startup. 20 well, or 30. Why is that? Because it's cheaper. That it's why, cheaper to start a startup. That? Okay, I can tell you. I've thought a lot about this. There's four reasons it's cheaper to start a startup. I hope I can remember them all right on the fly. Three would be great. Um, i got to get them all right. <laughs> okay, so one of them is hardware, right? Moore's Law has made computers effectively free in the sense that you know, you used to, if you started a startup before, you used to have to go out and buy fancy computers to do it. And now, like, the computer you've already got for playing World of Warcraft is good enough, right? Yep. Um, so com- Moore's Law has made computers effectively free. The Internet has made promotion free. It used to be if you made a product, you had to, like, buy advertising or hire a PR firm, at least, to get word out, right? And now, word can spread so much more quickly, not just through word of mouth, but through new publications on the internet. Well, social networking. I mean, just easier to find cool stuff than it used to be. Yeah, so basically, easier. you build it and they will come. And that didn't used to be as true as it is now, right? Um, That's two. Okay, we're up to two. Uh, another one is programming languages have gotten more advanced. Um, programming languages have gotten more abstract in the sense that you sort of build programs out of bigger Lego blocks, right? And that means you don't have to do as much work to get a given amount of program done. Um, and um, in that case, what's happened is there's actually been a qualitative change. Because it used to be most people, you know, to build a startup as if they were all the same amount of work, right? But just yeah. assuming they are, uh, you know, you would have to have like a team of developers, like five or six people writing code in C++, right? And it doesn't work to have five or six founders in a startup. So probably what that means is you had to hire people. Now, using a language like Ruby or Python or something like that that's more abstract than C++, uh, you can do it with just the founders. If you have two programmers among the founders, like you have two founders and they can both program, or three founders and two of them are programmers, right? You don't have to hire anyone. You can just do it yourselves. You can write all the code, the first version yourselves, which means you don't need to raise money to hire anyone because hiring people, like, that's suddenly shockingly expensive, you know? Like if that's for cash flow. If it's just you, the founders, like, living on ramen and working out of their apartments and they already had computers and a network connection, right? I mean, that's no more expensive than just, like, hanging out doing nothing for a summer, right? But when you have to hire people, man, suddenly it gets much more expensive, right? So you don't have to hire people. That's what it comes down to. That's three out of four, but there's another one. But anyway, the main point is it's gotten cheaper, and I forgot why we were interested in that. But there was well, that's why there are so many more startups, right? right? The reason there are so many more oh, startups I know, was, and now, the mobility of them. That was what was important. Too. Yes, well, they're mobile. They're mobile for this just two guys same reason that there are so many, right? When it's very cheap to start a startup, what that means is anyone can do it, right? Like back in the days when a startup meant like a hardware company, and you had to get raise money to build a, an actual factory. Right. The only people, you know, you needed millions of dollars to do this, and to get those millions of dollars, you had to be plausible. 
You have to be old and well-dressed and have this long list of publications. Maybe you could be a complete useless fraud, but as long as you looked plausible, you know, you could raise this money. Now, anybody who wants to do it can. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost anything more than just hanging out for a summer anyway, right? And so what that means is there's this huge, much larger pool of people, and there's much more variation in it, actually. I mean, if, uh, if reward is proportionate to risk, then the fact that people can do so many more risky ideas than they used to be able to ought to mean the technology will now progress faster. Right? Paul, if the right hand, you have a better shot maybe at getting some people out of the right hand tail. Right? The high return, highest return people, as you expand the pool, you're going to have, a, you're always going to lop off the losers anyway. So volume is going to be very important. Yeah. Just pure numbers is going to be a good thing. And you know, the two, you see it already, like the two hottest startups right now. Facebook and Google, right? If you still count Google as a startup. And both of them were so risky when they first started that venture capitalists wouldn't hear of it. They both initially had to raise money from angels because VCs told them both no. Explain the distinction between VCs and angels. Oh, VCs uh, invest large amounts of other people's money and angels invest smaller amounts of their own money, (laughs) right? Um, So Ron Conway. Ron Conway is a famous angel. In fact, he was... He did. He angel invested in both Google and Facebook. Now, why would it be that angels? I think the common guess would be that when you're investing other people's money, you could be riskier rather than when you're investing your own. Money oh no, it's the other money. way around. Right. So explain why that is. Uh, VCs have to worry if they invest. If they invest in a startup that sucks but looks plausible, like the guys are famous and old and responsible looking, you know. Um, then if the startup tanks, they can say to the people whose money they were investing, but look, it looked so solid. Everybody right. else, you know, we these guys to, were eminent. Yeah. They had all this good press, right? Whereas if they invest in some 19-year-old with some wacko idea and it tanks, all their limited partners will be saying, how could you invest in this 19-year-old with this stupid idea? And then right. what are they going to say, right? Whereas an angel, an angel can just like go with his gut, right? Also, angels tend to be a different kind of person. Angels are very often people who were startup founders themselves. That was where they got the money to do angel investing, right? Whereas VCs rarely are startup founders. They're people who've come up through this parallel course of MBAs and stuff, right? This parallel track. A few of them are, and they tend to make really good VCs, but most aren't. Most are money managers. So you would say that the two hottest, Google and Facebook were both Angel investments. Initially, yeah. Yeah, VCs because those, turn them down. those founders were not old guys with long track records and resumes. And the ideas seemed wacko, yeah, right? Like, did. there was no... The, the word social networking hadn't been invented when, when Facebook was founded. Just like fantasy as a genre didn't exist when Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, right? So what was the Lord of the Rings? This weird, like, fairy tale? What was it, right? Same for... Any really new idea, you know, creates the genre. So that there's no name for it, whatever it is. And the social networking thing is so fascinating, partly because of that, right? It's, it's something that's taken over thousands of people's lives that didn't yeah. exist three years ago. Yeah, that's it makes you wonder what thing. else is coming. Right, well, that's why it makes you wonder what it is, and the impulse is, well, there won't be anything like that ever again. But, of course, <laughs> there will be in about three years, probably. It's whatever it is is probably being built now. Yeah. It just you can't tell what it is. And you know what? I can't tell either. Yeah. You, I remember you asked me earlier, much earlier, if there were any patterns and ideas, right? Um, and, you know, there was a line in The Saint. 
um, TV show. Yeah, the TV show The Saint, uh, where Roger Moore. If you, you should, I would recommend The Saint. Actually, you'll have a new respect for Roger Moore. He's not just like the bad Bond. Um, <laughs> he was great in The Saint. Uh, there's a line where someone says, "You know, you're 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 disappointed by me," or something like that, and he goes, "I'm never disappointed by anything." <laughs> Basically, he's learned he's never surprised by anything right. anymore, right? And I've I've learned that too because I, we've now we've now funded 144 startups, right? And even before that, like practically everybody I knew was a startup founder at some point or other, right? So I have seen so much stuff happen, and I've been surprised so many times by people who seemed super promising and produced nothing, and other people who seemed lame and produced amazing stuff at this point i just like sit back and watch things happening you know i mean there are things i look for but not certain kinds of ideas you're not trying to anticipate the next big thing no by definition you can't yeah right by definition you can't if it's a really good idea then you know it'll seem kind of stupid that's what's cool about capitalism should be cool about it anyway. Yeah. So, so, I, so I pulled you off track again. Just imagine if you had to do central planning for this. Right. I've just said, here I am, I'm at the heart of this, and I have an explicit policy of not even trying to plan. If I even tried to think about, think ahead, about idea, about type, types of projects anyway, right, I, it would only add, it would only dilute my thinking with crap, yeah. you know? You see, in, in, uh, there's this story in Europe where the French and German governments are cooperating to make some kind of Google. They're going to spend like $100 million making their own Google. And it's so stupid, yeah, right? Like, <laughs> that was a good idea in 1997. Yeah, they missed it. Just <laughs> right? They missed it. That window closed, didn't they? Well, if they want to have a Google of France, it shouldn't be a search engine, right? It should be something else. What yeah. should it be? Well, let's think. What was Google? What, was, what Google was was something that at the time looked like a stupid idea to most people, proposed by a bunch of outsiders, right? Right? What are the odds that some government project is going to end up working on a stupid idea of the type proposed by outsiders? You know, worse than average, worse than random. Sure. Now it's a beautiful example of um, you know this uh, the Hayekian idea of trial and error is where progress comes from. It's not centrally planned. It's planned by individuals who many of whom fail, and the market weeds them out and. We move forward. Well, in fact, the way we advise startups to operate is to do this individually on a per-startup basis, too. What we advise, and it's not like some magic secret of ours. This is pretty much standard procedure with web apps. We tell people, release something as soon as you possibly can, because the point of releasing is to start learning from your users what you should have actually been building, right? Yeah. So you release something as soon as you have anything that's like good enough that even 10 people would care. And then you watch really carefully what those 10 people do, and that's when you start actually building your product, whatever it is. Yeah, I know we, did a, we had a conversation with Amarby Day about how information co- goes up rather than down in, that, in, that, in, a, in the American economy, in lots and lots of places. The creators of the products learn from the users. It's a oh, yeah. wonderful form of R&D. There's nothing better than, than to have sort of sophisticated users, right? And, 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 and conversely, it's dangerous to build a product for giant corporations or, God help you, for the Defense Department, because then the stupidity of your customer will, like, make you stupid. Infect you, yeah. Right? <laughs> you want to build a product, you want to build a product for clever, impoverished outsiders. Right. Right? If 
the hoping there's enough people somewhat like them with their tastes out there to sell to Well, them. if you know, the, the point is the clever, impoverished outsiders are leaders. They're harbingers, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, in the medieval symbol, well, almost by <laughs> definition when it comes to technology, right? They're sophisticated and they're cheap, so they're willing, they're looking for something new yeah. and less expensive and better, and they're willing to switch, right? They're not just driven by inertia like large corporations. Okay, so you bring these folks in. Okay, okay. So we bring these folks in, and then for three months, we work intensively with them to get something that they can demo to the next round of investors. We describe ourselves as like first gear. Venture, venture funding actually tends to operate in sort of several separate levels, like gears, right? And, and it's rare for people to participate in multiple levels. Um, there's so this is the incubator-ish kind uh, of that's, that's the word people like Sorry. to apply. Well, it has a certain, there's an embryo, a fetus, whatever, it's going to grow. And Well, the reason I don't, the reason the word incubator doesn't apply is because what it always used to mean back in the bubble, in the internet bubble, when this term first started to be used, is that all the startups work on your premises. Right, right under your... You have some yeah. big building and all the startups work there. And I think that's actually a terrible idea. It makes the startups... First thing. Well, also, it makes the startups feel like employees, right? Right, which is bad, yeah. Very often, if you think of very successful startups, they all have these stories about what things were like in their first office when they were working out of the garage, you right, know, right. and they, like, Romance, yeah. they were working until 2 o'clock in the morning and surrounded by pizza boxes, and they were like, you know, in this garage with this washing machine that they would turn on to keep warm when it got cold or some <laughs> crap like that, right? It's not a coincidence. It's good for the startup to be off on their own. They can find space. They can work out of their apartments. Right. Space is not the hard part, right? right? So we don't, we don't do that okay, explicitly. So, so, but for those three months, but, but they do have to be a little bit nearby. Well, so them. this is what we do. We have dinner once a week. Okay. They don't live with us, but they okay. come over for dinner. That's nice. Right? Okay. Um, so once so they get to use the washing machine. <laughs> Laundry is very important when you're young. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't think we have a washer. Okay. Um, but people do use bizarre, bizarrely large amounts of our infrastructure for various <laughs> things at various times. It's true. Um, Okay, so we have these dinners once a week, and we invite some expert in startups to speak, usually some famous startup founder, right? Um, and, and these guys give a talk about like how things really work. These talks, I swear, like maybe 60% of the interesting gossip that I know about Silicon Valley, I have learned in these talks, because they're completely off the record, and these these guys, like they're speaking founder to founder, and they really give you the goods cool. on how things really work. They're they're just fascinating. Um, unfortunately, we can never publish them. Right. I mean, if we ever broadcast them, they would just disappear. Right. <laughs> right. The, the speakers cool. would clam up. Um, but boy, the talks are very interesting. Okay, so then at the end of uh, roughly ten weeks, we have this big event called Demo Day. Um, which is now a misnomer because it's two days. We can't fit everybody in our building all at once anymore. Um, we have this big event, though, called Demo Day, where uh, we invite all the investors in Silicon Valley and the rest of the country. They come in from some other places. Um, and the startups all present to them for five minutes apiece, right? That's it. Everything's fast. Mm -hmm. Everything's efficient. And... Uh, you know, bang, 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 all 26 startups present, and then that's sort of the beginning of the conversation about raising the next round of money. Um, at the end of three months, the dinners stop, uh, but nothing else stops. I have regular office hours. I meet with the startups, um, and like I'll, I'm still having office hours with startups we funded two, three years ago. So there's the only formal thing that ends after three months is the dinners. So it's a... Uh there's a formal counseling and 
mentoring experience that's part of this that might be missing for a lot of other or no. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's an important part of it. That's a very cool thing. Oh no, that's what it's mainly about. It's not about the money. Right. It's not about the money. No, it's about the knowledge. Yeah. Do you, um, help, do you help them with the deal making? It yes, must be a huge yeah. problem. The two big things that we work with startups on are what they're building. Um, and talking to investors. Those are the biggest things. And then there's a bunch of other peripheral things. But like, they don't know how to talk to investors. Most of us No, know, right. We right? have to teach them you how to talk You teach them how to, them how to negotiate and structure that next deal because that's a huge The negotiation challenge. part isn't the hard part. You wish, right? The hard part is to get an investor to oh, want yeah. to even negotiate. Uh, yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> the hard part <laughs> is to convince the investors that your startup is worth investing in. Right. Um, and so that's the main thing we talk to them about. We and talk your, to them about the details of negotiation, too. And what's your share? What do you guys get out of this experience? Equity. Um, same amount, different amounts, negotiate deal by deal. How do you it do varies that? from 2 to 10%, mm-hmm. um, but on average, 6 to 7. Okay. And uh, the common people, stock. And what we do get people, diluted in later sure. rounds, just like the founders do. And what do people think of this? The Y Combinator idea? Um, what's, your repu- what's your reputation? I think it's good. And I'll tell you, one evidence, one sign that I have that it's good is that when, uh, when people are applying to us, you know, I feel confident telling them that they can just pick any Y Combinator funded startup and ask them what they think of us. Sure. Right. Um, if, our, if, I thought people, if, there, if I thought there were a significant number of people who didn't like us, I would feel nervous about doing that. Yeah. So either our reputation is good or I'm deluded. Um, but I think it's good. <laughs> I think it's good. Uh-huh. I, would, I would be horrified if it wasn't. <laughs> because in this, in this kind of business, your reputation is everything. So let's, let's turn to the, uh, the times we live in. Uh, two issues. As a player in this, a deeply embedded player in this world, what have you noticed to be the impact of the macroeconomic recession going back to December of seven, and then California in particular has having some problems uh, yeah. fiscally? Have you noticed has it affected your life as a Y Combinator person in terms of anything? California's fiscal troubles, I have not noticed any sign of. That okay. doesn't seem to affect anything at all. Um, Maybe it will. Yeah, maybe it will. If the aqueducts stop flowing. Yeah, I think. Right? Raise, or they raise taxes a lot or might be less fun to live here. Yeah. That could affect things. But taxes here are already hideously high. Right. So just think what it's going to be. income tax already. I know. Think what it's going to be like when it's higher still. It could have some effects that would be it's true. unpleasant. It's true. The scary thing, it's scary to think how high they could raise taxes before people would start to leave Silicon Valley, yeah. though. They like it a lot. I don't want the government to know that. Yeah, mom's the word. <laughs> what about the economy at large? The economy at large. The, we were worried, actually. We were very worried that, that, in, that investors would just slap their wallets shut and nobody would be investing. But people kept investing. And I say kept in the past tense because for, for startups, at least, the bad days are over. For startups, unless there's some second wave of disaster, if like the Chinese stock market tax or something like that, knock on wood, <laughs> unless there's some new wave of disaster, for startups at least, the, the, the badness has bottomed. Um, when it was bad, what did you notice? Valuations were lower. People were still investing, but valuations were like half what they had been. Meaning forecasts of what opportunities would be. No, no, I mean uh, valuations when people invest in a startup. If people invest in a startup, if they invest like a million dollars 
at a pre-money valuation of two million. What that means is the post-money valuation is two million plus the million they put in, or three million, so they're gonna own a third of the company, right? So effectively, when I say valuations were lower, what I mean is investors were asking for more of the company. So they were scared. You know, I it's don't a lot more think a lot more that uncertainty they were, about the future. I honestly don't think the investors were scared. I think they just that investors just sensed that everyone was more desperate, and so people. So it was just supply and demand. There were some people who were sort of thrown off by the economy, and so there were fewer people investing. And the people who were still right. investing thought, "All right, we can." Well, they could. We can push things on terms. No, that's right. We'll get away with what we can. Yeah. Well, they always right? try, but it's a question of competition. And when there's less competition, they're going to get a better deal. Yeah. But so that changed. Not, not everybody ran out of money, right? There were some VC funds that were like really sort of structurally messed up because their LPs couldn't come up with their capital commitments and stuff like that, and they literally couldn't keep writing checks, right? LPs are limited partners. Yeah. But there were plenty of other investors, like big angels and the more you know, the top VC funds, they had no problem. They kept investing. So they just basically took advantage of the bad economy to get more of everyone's and company. You'd, you'd think there'd be some people who were thrown out of work who might turn to a startup as a way to do the next thing they were might have done otherwise instead of the thing they were going to do otherwise. We didn't see a lot of evidence of that. I wouldn't say for sure that it hadn't happened, but we haven't seen a lot of it. What's the age, typically, of the people that you're working with? 25, 26, you so, know, a couple of years out of college. So either they've been working for some big company for a couple of years and realize, you know, oh, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> or they're in grad school and drop out or something like that. We were talking earlier about how cities, and you wrote about this in a recent essay, how cities might be able to capture um, the startup market or attract be a magnet for startups and yeah. venture money. Uh, I think economic development in the 90s in particular went through, urban economic development went through a rather bizarre uh, phase where people thought we need to be more like Seattle. Hmm. And it's interesting well, for you mentioned... most U.S. cities, that would be a good thing. <laughs> right, it would be, except they don't, you can't get there from here is the problem. So, for example, you mentioned St. Louis earlier as a possible place to start a competitor for the Y Combinator. I used to be at Washington University in St. Louis, and the city of St. Louis thought, well, <clears throat> we're a lot like Seattle. They have a world-class university, which was the University of Washington. We have a world-class university, Washington University in St. Louis. They have Boeing, they, we have Boeing. They have Boeing, we have McDonnell Douglas. Now, that wasn't part of the combination, but... They had um, uh, an entrepreneurial company called Microsoft, and St. Louis had Monsanto, which was a biotech health-type company. Mm. And we could create the same kind of synergies, except for one thing. More people want to live in Seattle than St. Louis. Oh, yeah. So that little geographic challenge that St. Louis is flat and not interesting geographically is an insurmountable problem. It's an interesting question if flatness is an insurmountable problem. You mean literally topographical literally. Yeah, flatness. no, it's boring. It's visually boring. Yeah. It's like, it's a lovely city. I raised four kids there for a long time, and we had a great time there. And I, I don't want any of our listeners to think that St. Louis is a, is a bad place. I liked living there a lot, and it's an unappreciated city for many things. But as a place for 22-year-olds and 18-year-olds and 27-year-olds to Isn't build that- a life, it's not as attractive as Seattle or Silicon Valley, or Boston, or Austin, Texas. Or Portland. Or Portland, Oregon. So they're going to, 
always have that inherent advantage. Yeah. And so the road to development isn't to try to say we're going to become, and by the way, a lot, one of the ways that the city worked to create this entrepreneurial startup culture was they funded a lot of incubators, which I'm sure did terribly, the kind mm. we were talking about earlier, public-private partnerships. It's the same kind of strange idea. Here, you know, the same idea as the following. It's the kind of thing politicians like. They love it. They can have some ribbon-cutting ceremony. Photo op. There's we some open kind the of actual building high-tech right? incubator where we've got T1 lines was a big thing. And right. we have a lab for your, again, economies of scale. Whereas if you look at all our startups, they're not even working in our space. Right. They're all working in some it's, kitchen of some rented apartment no, in Mountain View with a bunch of like pizza boxes no, it's, flying it's, around. It's bizarre That's idea. what startups really look like, right? right? No, Larry and Sergey in their garage. Yeah, no, it's a bizarre idea. It didn't, it didn't, I suspect it didn't turn out very well, though there's some fine biotech research coming out of Washington University. And Monsanto's done some extraordinary things. But well, biotech is a completely different world, right? Biotech versus like software and web services. They call them both startups, but mm-hmm. there's the structure of how things work is so different, right? Biotech, it really is about commercializing research. You have yeah, some guy who's correct. the principal investigator who's like the lead guy. You get a patent, you, you get regulatory know who the guy stuff. Is. Got, yeah. It's all, there's so much less risk. You know, and it costs so much more money. No, there's less risk. I, I mean, know. your chances are not like one in ten, right? I mean, you know who to back. You know, if someone's gonna if someone's gonna make the next new heart drug or something like that, you can probably narrow it down to twenty people, right? Yeah, I don't know. That is, that is way not true for whoever's gonna make the next Google. I think there's a term. Well, I don't know. Anyway, it's an interesting question. I, I, I literally don't. But but back to what we were talking about, which was this sort of interesting geographical uh, role that cities and regions and areas play in innovation in America. So we have right now a handful of places where bright, ambitious people go to start businesses because there's money in those places. There's people like them who, if they could eventually are successful, they can hire. And they're pleasant places to live. The weather's nice. The weather is nice. Or... There's just a lot of people like them who are fun to be around because right. they want to be around people like themselves. Usually because of a university. Often. Right. Could be where they went. They want to stay and relive those glory days and live you know, in this, a similar area. Or it's the, the university gets them there in the first place. Correct. Like neither Larry nor Sergey are from the Bay Area, right? Correct. They, came, they went to the University of Michigan and Maryland respectively, yep. right? And then they came to grad school at Stanford, and that was where they met. Stanford right. was like this magnet that brought them in, like, you know, and then these... We're talking about uh, Larry Page collided. and Sergey Brin, the founders yes. of Google, for those, those of you who are on a first-name basis with the Google founders. Um, but it does lead to this, because as you said, because it is possible to create a magnet that draws people, it does seduce cities and politicians into thinking that they can capture some of those folks uh, through, some, through the right public policy, but it's very hard to do, obviously. Well, they don't seem, these cities that try to do this sort of thing, they don't seem to be critical about their own plans. They, don't, they have some plan that's going to be some sort of technology, revitalize the downtown or something right. like that. And they never seem to sort of stop and ask themselves, is this plan actually going to work? <laughs> right? Right. They produce this thing as a result of some political compromise, but they don't actually think, well, is this what they did in the other cities that are successful? Is this how they did it? Or, right. or they do that. They say, well, and this is the other thing that, that's fascinating. They sent a delegation to Seattle. They really did. Yeah, St. Louis did do. this. Many cities do it, I'm sure. They send it and say, so what did you do? And then they think, well, we'll just do that now. Forgetting the fact that it's like the Google of France 
10 yeah. years ago it was a good idea, now it's a waste of money. Or what works in Seattle might not work somewhere else, Because right? of, you can't see Mount Rainier from St. Louis uh, on a clear day, even a very clear day. <laughs> um, what, um, let's, let's shift gears. I, I want to talk about a wonderful essay that you wrote that became the title of, of a collection of essays, which is Hackers and Painters. Uh, do you still think about that metaphor, and why don't you tell our listeners what you had in mind about the similarities between hackers and painters, because it's oh. very interesting. Well, when I was in college studying programming, there was this idea floating around that programming was supposed to be like math, right? Um, it was all formalism and proving things. Um, and what I found, actually, is uh, that the interesting parts of programming, you can't really make scientific, <laughs> even scientific, let alone mathematical, mm -hmm. right? People wish you could. It would make great research papers if you could. And they call a computer science. Yeah. Well, you know, everything's science. Back at Cornell, I think they had a department of poultry science. I'm sure. <laughs> well, that might be real science, actually. <laughs> actually, probably it is. Yeah, exactly. More than computer science. <laughs> probably a bunch of angry chicken farmers show up at my door now. Um, so... Uh, it turned out, it seemed to me, that programming at least, like writing software, um, what made you good at it was not what would make a scientist good at science. It was more like, it was more like what would make a painter good at painting, um, or m most closely probably what would make an architect good at architecture, right? Like, what makes an architect good is not a command of statics. You know, it's something a little less uh, organized than that. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's there's taste. An there's an aesthetic it's aspect. Taste and a sense of design, you know, and a certain knack, right? It's, it's very hard to say exactly what it is. Um, but, you know, people write whole books about what makes good artists good. Uh, but I had studied painting at one point, and I found that Hacking and painting had a lot in common. Like, you're trying to make stuff, right? And so, uh, you know, that the, the people who make stuff, right, are really all have much more in common with one another than, regardless of what sort of vertical silo of the world they're in, right? There's this sort of horizontal brotherhood of people who make stuff, yeah. right? And, and that they might not have realized it, but that programmers and painters were next door neighbors, yeah. you know? It's interesting. So you, you studied painting. Did, did it, other than making the observation that they have something in common, did you find that, that studying painting and painting itself made you a better hacker? Well, I find that I can, like... Uh, look at a, a hex color and know what it's going to look like. I suppose, you know, in, in, in HTML, you express colors in hexadecimal numbers in base 16, uh -huh. right, the RGB components. And I could, when HTML came along, I could look at these colors and guess roughly what they would look like. Pleasant, right? A pleasant benefit. That's the most <laughs> literal example. Um, actually, though, uh, I mean, a lot of what makes web startups succeed is to have a sense of design. So I learned, you know, what, what a good design sense is from studying this kind of thing. Um, and also, our, the, our model for cheapness is the artist's model for cheapness, right? Like, artists manage to live cheaply in a way that's not squalid, right? Like, like people who are poor but uneducated 
tend to live a sort of caricature of rich people's lives. They have the same kind of things, but if you look up close, they're like made out of plastic and you know tawdry, and it's just grim, right? Whereas an artist will say, I'm not even going to try to live like that. I'll just live in an industrial space. I'm not even going to live in a fake mansion, right? I'll just like rent a loft, right? <laughs> manufacturing space, and I'll just paint everything white. It'll be super cheap and cheery, and I'll put some cool, bright colored things on the wall, right? You know, and that's what we do with startups. We tell people, like, don't even try to do, like, a tawdry, fake imitation of, like, Microsoft. Just, like, work out of your apartment, <laughs> you know, but make your software really good, mm-hmm. right? That's an interesting question. So when you said they can be poor but not squalid, I immediately saw uh, a production of Lobo M in my mind, which was, you know, somewhat squalid. But uh, it's the TB, I guess, the tuberculosis that... that Brings it to the consumption. That well, you know, it at the end. poverty, poverty, and squalor are getting more separated. Probably as time went on, like you know, in in thirteen hundred, if you were poor, you probably lived squalidly, yeah, right? But nowadays, the baselines, like society, has gotten so much richer that even you know beggars are rich now by the by standards. Yeah. You know, the standards of a thousand A.D. Right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, nineteen seventy uh, sometimes. Yeah. You have to go back to 1000 AD. For in some medical it. stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So uh, the baseline is just so high now that um, there are many more opportunities to live like super cheaply in a way that's completely different from the way people ex- live expensively and yet still nice. Right? Do you want to say anything else about hacking and painting? <sighs> um, we've, talked on, we've talked on the program about this left brain, right brain division, which is, of course, somewhat arbitrary, but somewhat true. It's a useful way to think about things sometimes. People think of, I think, hackers as left brain and painters as right brain. And obviously, there's a, both, there's a right brain aspect to hacking, and there's also, I assume, a visionary aspect, right? There's, a, there's an aha. There's a, I'm going to look at this the way no one's looked at it before. It must be somewhat similar. Creativity. Well, aspect. I'll tell you. Yes, actually, there is a there is a there is a sort of comparison here that's true for both hacking and painting. In the world of painting, there are some people who are just fabulously talented at drawing. You, they can sit down. You know, these are like the kids who could draw in high school, right? Yeah, at age fifteen, they can sit down. Um, you know, with a pencil and just sit yep. down in front of you and like, wow. Look, it looks just like me, right? Right. Um, But then when you say to these guys, okay, use this amazing skill to just produce anything. Just put it on the wall. It's going to look great. Then they lose, right? Um, And and within programming, there is this distinction too, right? There are some people who are really, really good at implementing code. Like if you give them a spec, you give them a spec for a programming language, and man, they will just implement it. The hardest stuff, as long as you tell them precisely what to do, they will just do it, right? But you you say, okay, make up a product, you know, make up some kind of new product that people want, and they are just utterly lost, right? Um, this is actually a big mistake that companies make. There's a lot of companies who think that what the programmers are basically implementers. That products are supposed to be designed by product managers. They're supposed to be designed what the products do, and you know they make you know 
mock-ups or something like that, and then they hand it to the programmers, and the programmers translate their ideas into code. Like, you know, this one-way process, no loopback, right? Um, and that loses, <laughs> right? The best programmers are the ones who combine in one head both the ability to translate ideas into code and having the ideas, yeah, <laughs> right? Sure. Um, just like the best artists, you know, have both the ability, have like a great hand. They can make their hand do what they want, but they also know what to tell it to do, yeah. right? Yeah, and actually, between the two, between the two, I would take the Cezannes, yeah. right? Like Cezanne could not draw. He makes the same drawing mistakes that everyone makes in introductory drawing classes, <laughs> right? Occam's razor said he couldn't draw, you know, yeah. not that he was like trying to transcend three dimensions. Super genius, yeah. Um, but, but what he was good at was sort of the other half, like deciding what to produce, right? He was, and so he was terribly frustrated. He was like this guy who had all kinds of ideas and he couldn't articulate them with his right. hand, yeah, right? Sad, yeah. um, but the, when you put the stuff on the wall in a room full of other paintings, it looks like there's a spotlight shining on his paintings and the other ones have been sprayed with a light coating of mud. It's just amazing when you look at side-by-side -side paintings. Um, so I'll take the Cezannes, actually. And one interesting thing that's been happening is because programming languages have gotten so powerful, you don't have to be that good an implementer to get something built yeah, and out there. Cool Let me ask you about a, a related stereotype that you hear sometime, and I'd be curious whether you think it's true or not. One standard view is that technical people like bells and whistles, and so they create products that are technologically cool or fun or show off their skills, but they're not what the user wants. Is, that, is there anything to that stereotype? Yeah, yeah. It's, if you're a hacker, you, like, you tend to like gadgets, right? Sure. Um, and so it's a tendency you have to fight. Just like if you're going to be a good football player, you might have a tendency to get in fights also on the field, and you probably and you have to keep that under control, sure. <laughs> right? Because yeah. you're an aggressive kind of guy. Right, yeah, right? and you're well, strong. If you're a hacker, you're definitely into... I mean, that's what a hack means. A hack is like when someone does something that's sort of like gratuitously cool, uh -huh. you know, like almost like a practical joke. And um, so do you see that in your startups that you've got to rein that in? Well, it's not too much of a problem because they have so little time uh -huh. <laughs> to get something done. They do not have time to waste on any kind of frivolity, frivolity, so it hasn't been a problem. But I'll tell you, every hacker has to fight this. Uh -huh. uh, you wrote recently in an essay that Facebook killed TV. What did you mean? Well, um... What I, I mean, literally, what I meant is that's what people are doing instead of watching TV, right? Um, I meant, I didn't mean that to be absolutely true, right? That is, that is what I said was that's as, it's as, about as true as you can get in three words, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean... But you were talking about this sort of uh, horse race. I felt a little bit bad writing that because uh, that's the kind of thing that, like, that's the kind of thing that journalists write. <laughs> yeah, I know what you, you mean. Know? Because TV isn't dead and you know, who knows what Facebook will turn out to be. Right. And, but, but you were talking about a more interesting, uh, deeper issue, which is there's a... Um, that people like to talk to one another, right? Yeah. Um, and that maybe, maybe you didn't realize it, but what 
what TV was, like the Brady Bunch or something like that. What that was was a fake, a fake family produced for everybody and broadcast the same episodes to everyone, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you might have preferred to be talking to your own real group of friends, but there just wasn't a mechanism for it. There was just the telephone where you could talk to one at once until your parents got mad, mm-hmm. right? Now you can talk to them all, all the time, you know? And so maybe you don't need the Brady Bunch anymore. So... That's an interesting observation about social networking, but it was also you were also saying something about gadgetry, about TV versus um, computer versus, and you got cell phone versus camera, right? We have all these these. Well, this question was, of, is what got people to use computers, even though they're really hard to use, right? Like, yeah, that, that's why everybody has to have a computer now. Even like fourteen-year-old girls, like they got to have computers yeah, because exactly. that's how they exchange pictures with their friends. But people who are over a certain age, let's pick fifty. It's actually a, a smaller number. People who are over the age of fifty, and it's probably maybe thirty-nine, but we'll say fifty. They don't get this at all, right? I'm over fifty. I'm fifty-four. Right. So the Facebook phenomenon, the Twitter phenomenon, among I do both, but not very aggressively. Whereas people under the age of twenty-five. It's a central organizing feature of their life. Yeah. And when you talk to the people who are over 50, they say, they throw up their hands and they because their kids are doing it, and they say, I don't get it. Why do I care that you're uh, feeding your dog right now? To them, it's like the, the celebration of minutia. What's really going on in that world? Maybe that's all it is, and that when you're 18, that is your life is minutia. So you know, hey. I think as a first approximation, that's it. Right? <laughs> 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 that like... Teenagers basically waste all their time hanging out with their friends, and this is the current way they do it. Yeah. Yeah, it used to be they leaned on cars. Cars used to be the, the, the hardware, and now we've moved to, to cell phones or smaller. I mean, I don't use Facebook. I don't have a Facebook account. I don't... Do you tweet? No. No. I mean, I tried, I tried blogging. I think you're missing out, evidently. <laughs> People seem to enjoy it a great deal. I don't... <laughs> uh, I don't want to be. I, I already have enough distractions. Yeah, no, it's right? a big distraction. Um, I look at these things and they just seem like a time sink, right? I likely need less time sinks, not more. Right, but that's a feature, not a bug, right? For a certain demographic. Not for me. Right. right? For I you. mean, if it's the new TV, that means I should avoid it because I certainly avoided the old TV. Right. Right? Like, I kicked that habit at, at age 15. And now it has snuck back into my computer through the internet, yeah, right? Like, it's true. It's like someone stuck a television in my typewriter, right? But I was asked, yeah, that's a nice metaphor. But I, when you, you said something strange, you said, that's why you have to have a TV. That's why you have to have a computer now. Whereas for people over a certain age, in my experience, people over uh, over seventy, say seventy plus, many of them have no cell phone. Many of them don't use e. Not many of them. Some of them still don't use email, or they certainly don't use it regularly. But Twitter and, and Facebook, these social networking experiences. I mean, it's not just over 70, it's over 50. Those folks don't need a computer for those things because they don't do that stuff. Yeah, sure. Right? It's the younger people who, quote, have to have a computer now or a cell phone. Or So the interesting question is whether it's the younger people because these things are for young people or whether it's the younger people because the younger people are using the new technology and will, you know, 30 years from now, yeah, that's are, the question. are there going to be a bunch of 70-year-old Facebook users, right? Um, I honestly don't know. Yeah. I honestly don't know. I mean, I feel like most people like to waste a lot of their time at most ages, yeah. right? If and you're so, rich in a wealthy 
in a wealthy society. If you can, can afford, afford to. Yeah. Actually, poor societies spend a lot of time hanging around chatting, too. That's true. <laughs> they're just hungry true. while they're doing it. Yeah, that's um, well said. <laughs> so, I would guess, yes. I would guess that, I mean, the reason 70-year-olds don't do it is because their peers don't do it, right? Yeah, but, th- but there's another problem there, which is the... Which I, this is what I find fascinating. I, my dad is uh, 78, and he uses the computer, right? He's an emailer. He does lots of things. But lots of things are hard for him because the technology is moving quickly, and he's 78, And he right? didn't grow up with it. He didn't grow up with it. But our kids, my kids, they're going to have grown up with it, but there's a new thing coming along that they won't have grown up with, and they're going to end up just like, I'm going to end up like my dad, and, if, well, and so are they. The interesting thing is, if, if technology keeps changing faster and faster, people will be younger and younger when they're left behind. Yeah, right? that's, what I'm, yeah that's what I'm thinking, right? Yeah. So maybe, maybe there will come a time when 30-year-olds are like left behind because 18-year-olds yeah. are doing the new yeah, thing. Yeah, they've got the embedded cell phone in the nasal passage. And then, right. Uh, well, we're almost out of time. Let me ask you about two more things before we, before we stop. Why do you think the U.S. has such a vibrant startup culture and I'd like your thoughts on how immigration as a source of ideas affects the startup market. Well, actually, the, those, are, those, are both, <laughs> those are both the same question, partly. Yeah. A lot of the reason the United States has such a vibrant startup culture is because there are so many immigrants. Yeah. Immigrants start startups, yeah. right? Um, disproportionately so. There was some statistic, something like more than half of the IPO, IPO startups were founded by immigrants. Right. Having an open door might be our best economic policy. Oh, yeah. To smart people, yeah. at least. Yes, I think to absolutely. not smart people as well, I think just generally. But In your experience, have you noticed it? Oh, God, yes. This, I would say the single biggest problem that, that, that kills startups that we fund is visa problems. Interesting. People from overseas who, like, you know, get kicked out of the United States, can't come back, can't raise money because the investors at home suck. And they can't reach the investors here anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like the government's working as hard as it can to, you know, to keep people from coming here and like making the economy better. Yeah, well, that's an interesting political problem. Um, you wrote uh, a, a commencement address for high school students. It wasn't a commencement address. It was just, just a talk. Just you were going to give a talk, talk at, a, at a high school. Yeah, but you ended up not giving the talk yeah. because they disinvited you. I think. Well, Is what happened right? was some student wanted to invite me or something like that, but then they didn't get permission to do it. But they get. I was given the impression that I was, so I wrote this whole thing. Right. So I thought, well, I've written this thing. I can't actually give it, so I might as well put it online. And it's a lovely essay. Um, Thank you. Uh, it has some very good advice for uh, surviving high school and adolescence generally. And if you'd like to share any of that advice as we close, I'd like to hear it because I thought it was wonderful. Well, and the main thing I remember saying was that uh, you should treat high school as a day job. That I didn't realize when I was in high school, they told me like this is what I did. And I thought, well, my father goes off to his job designing nuclear plants, right? And my job is to go be in school, and I'm supposed to do what they tell me, and I'm good if I do well at that, right? Better you, better your grades, the better you've succeeded. Yeah, and like, you know, you're, you, you have to do this because if you do, do badly, you won't get into college, yep. right? You won't get into a good college. And, and I realize mm-hmm. now, looking back, that really, functionally, what high school really was was a holding pen. And so 
what do you do in that situation? Well, basically, welcome to the real world, right? Because even in the real world, plenty of people have to spend a lot of their time doing stuff they don't want to do. And what do you do? Well, you, you realize you have, to, you have to be in charge of like, deciding what you're really going to do, what's going to be your real life that people are going to you know, judge you based on. Um, and so... Actually, high school isn't so bad from that point of view, right? Compared to someone who, like, is out in the working world, 25 years old, and wants to be a painter or a poet or something unremunerative like that, right? And has to work all day as a waiter. Right. <laughs> high school is actually a pretty good gig. Yeah. You have a great deal of free time. Yep. The work is not demanding at all. You could even get away with doing your real work at high, at school and like if there yep. were sympathetic teachers they'd probably let you do it i mean it's a sweet deal right if you look at it that way um it's like as long as you're in prison you might as well like you know learn to be a great chess player or something yeah no there you go it's a bit harsh but there's some truth to it i always find it striking how i went to a very high reputation public high school I went to high school in Lexington, Massachusetts oh really yes good reputation as a as a public school and I went so I went to Lexington High School and I went to a high school with a really good reputation for football uh huh well <laughs> you'd think that would make a difference but maybe not um, I find it fascinating how little I remember of my high school experience uh, that just could be the nature of our brains right well every day is the same what you remember is change that's part of it, uh, but it, it was rather unremarkable. Uh, yeah. And that doesn't mean I didn't learn anything, right? But it's striking how little I can remember that I learned out of the how immense number of hours that was spent in, in, cl- in the classroom. And if you compare it to college, you remember much more. Much more, although college is also, there's quite a bit of unremembered stuff there. I have a handful of classes that I remember vividly, and I can yeah. list many, many things. Uh, that I that I physically, excuse, mentally re- can point to, and again, it doesn't mean that my brain wasn't working in different ways and learning channels of, of learning that were important. But I find it fascinating how little of it occurred in high school that I can remember. I don't know if that's at a good college at least. I mean, you remember classes, right? You don't remember classes from high school. You're in class, but you don't yeah, like take an, yeah, classes. Right. Yeah. Right? You never say, "Yeah, gosh, that that uh, that tenth grade English class was." Oh, I like. Mr. Mulcairn did a good job. I, wanted, I don't want anyone to think my 10th grade English class wasn't good. But, but it's but, not but the I know class what you, mean. you remember, it's the teacher. Yeah, and right. I know what you mean. Well, it's a big handicap when you have to read the Scarlet Letter. You know, that kind of takes some of the fun out of it automatically. Why do we do that to people? It's such a boring book. I actually, I actually wrote an essay about why, uh, why high school students are forced to read yeah, that's a that's a nice essay too. <laughs> These books. There's a lot. Of, it's interesting. You have a lot of deep insights into into those. The challenge of, of that that uh, that experience. I when I was in high school, I remember thinking one day, <laughs> I'm going to tell people about this. And like, you know, the web didn't even exist then. Yeah. I didn't think I was going to publish essays <laughs> online. I didn't know how I was going to do it. But I remember thinking, it was like someone, you know, in some prison camp yeah. remembering it all. Yeah, Solzhenitsyn burying his uh, manuscript or hoping he can get it out. So yeah. Like, my guest today has been Paul Graham. Paul, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. 
for more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.